Our scripture text today is Ephesians 5, 25-27, but I will read all the way to the end of the chapter to give the full context regarding what Paul has to say about marriage. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. As I indicated last week, this section is really about subjection. It starts in Ephesians 5, 21 and goes through chapter 6, several verses down, uh, where Paul finishes up the section talking about slaves and masters. But as I indicated, uh, the, the command to be subject to one another is applied to everyone, including those who are in authority. And husbands are in an authority position, but there is a way in which they are to be subject to one another. In marriage, uh, the husband is to be subject to his wife in the sense that he loves her. And not the same way as the wife is subject to her. She is to be his helpmate in helping him in his calling, submitting to his authority and his priorities for the family, his decisions, in all ways that don't violate her greater and higher duty to obey God. But the husband is likewise to subject himself to his wife in the way that he loves her. So what does that love entail, and what does it look like? That's what we will explore today. The very idea of love involves someone outside yourself. Love is an other-focused thing. It's the opposite of selfishness and self-centeredness. To love someone is to think about that person, to consider the interests of that person, to treat that person well, and to desire to bless him or her. To love another person means that you desire their happiness. Now, before we consider a husband's love to his wife, let's just apply this to the workplace. If I'm an employee of a business, I can either go into that business with an attitude of love or an attitude of selfishness. If I'm selfish, then I think of the boss and the other employees as existing primarily for me. In other words, I don't really care um, if they are blessed or not. I don't care about their happiness. I don't care about their interests. I'm just there to put in my time and get my paycheck, and I want the other people of the business to make my job easier and more pleasant. At a minimum, I want them to stay out of my way and not make my job harder. 
but I'm only thinking of them with respect to my own happiness. How can they help me? How can they make my job and my life easier? I don't think about their interests or their happiness. I'm not thinking about how to make their lives and their jobs easier. I'm not thinking of them because I don't love them. I'm thinking of me. On the other hand, if I do love them, I will work in ways that will benefit them. I will be thinking consciously of how I can bless them, not how they can bless me. I will have a high, I will have a, a giving mentality, not a taking mentality. Love is an outward focused thing. It looks to bless others. It's not self-focused. When we love God, we are God-focused and we're very concerned about what pleases God. When we love other people, we are focused on what is good for them. Love your neighbor as yourself. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-5 shows us the outward focus of love. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not seek its own. Love is outward focused. It's not selfish. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 uh, does not speak specifically about love, but love is implied as really that is the case with every command of scripture since the sum of all of the law of God both Old Testament and New Testament, is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So love is implied in Philippians 2, 3-4, where it says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So, when we think about a husband, if you apply the principle of love to a husband, what is required first of the husband is that he think outwardly, outside of himself, toward his wife. Selfishness and self-centeredness is not an option for a husband. Not when you're commanded to love your wife. Remember that she's not a hired maid, she's not a cook, and certainly she's not a prostitute. She is a wife. And that's not to say that a husband has permission to despise and mistreat anyone, maids, cooks, or whoever, nor is selfishness permitted by God in any circumstance with respect to any person. But the point is, is that if you hire a maid, all you're doing is paying her to clean your house. You should pay her a decent wage and you should treat her respectfully, but you don't have any special obligations toward her beyond that. There's not a relationship there as with a wife. It's purely transactional. She gives you cleaning, you give her money. But a wife is different. If what you have is a wife, if you signed a covenant and made vows to a wife, then you signed up for some so much more. It's not a transactional arrangement. This is a relationship with covenant obligations. When you made your vows, they were vows of giving and serving, not receiving and taking. Remember that? When you said, I do, it was to a question that went something like this. 
Husband, do you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife, to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Do you promise to love her, comfort her, honor, and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep only unto her as long as you both shall live? When you made your vows, you said perhaps something like this, I, husband, take you wife to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish forever until death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance. And thereto I give you my pledge. Notice how outward those things are. Outward-focused, other-focused. Notice what you didn't say in your vows. You didn't say, I gladly accept you to wash my clothes, wash the dishes, clean the house, raise the kids, give me back rubs, and render the conjugal debt however often I require it without requiring too much of me in return until death do us part. You see, we have a real problem here. A problem in marriage. No one knows what they're signing up for. Even if by slim chance you have a minister at your ceremony trying to tell the young couple what they're committing to, they're usually not hearing him at all. It works like this. God made it such that it's not good for a man to be alone. So a single man is lonely. He wants to find a woman to solve that problem. He wants friendship and companionship. He wants to find a woman to share his life with. He has other needs as well. He wants to find a wife to meet those needs. And that's all normal. That's the way God ordered it, so that the human race would want to marry. But few young men, hardly any actually, are thinking about what they can do for a wife. The man is thinking about what she can do for him, and vice versa. They're thinking about what they'll get out of marriage, not what they can give in marriage. They're thinking about how their needs will be met, not how they can meet the needs of their future spouse. They are fundamentally driven by self-centeredness, not love and servanthood. So marriage is a real challenge it is an absolute miracle that any marriage survives more than a couple of years, especially among unbelievers. Do you see someone who is divorced? Don't be shocked at them. Be shocked that you are still married, if you are, and understand that it is only by the grace of God that your marriage hasn't imploded. That's the only reason, the grace of God. The very first lesson you will learn when you get married is how selfish you are. As a single person, you don't really have a context to help you discover that. But marriage will provide you that opportunity. Husbands, love your wives. Love requires you to think outwardly, not inwardly. Love requires you to think of your wife a lot and give to her. Love is a giving thing, not a receiving thing. Hopefully it's reciprocated, and it's wonderful when it is. And it's also true that 
if you give love to her, you will receive back. We'll look more closely at that when we get to verse 28, where it says, He who loves his own wife loves himself. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So first, a clarification. This is not a requirement that husbands love their wives to the same degree that Christ loves the church. That is impossible. No husband can match Christ in his standard. What is here required is that husbands love their wives in the same manner as Christ loved the church. A man may learn much about how to be a good husband from another man who is an exemplary husband, but first and foremost, husbands are to look to Christ himself. He is the great example of husbandry. He's the perfect example. So how did Christ love his bride? Let us count the ways. There are many ways in which Christ showed his love for his bride, and the supreme example is his giving himself up for her in his atoning death. But we'll cover that at the very end. Let's go back to the starting point. We know that Christ loved the church before the foundation of the world, before the church even existed. But as we consider the example of Christ in loving the church, let's start with the incarnation. The decision by the Son of God to take a bride necessitated self-humbling on Christ's part. To have a bride, the Son of God had to become a man. And to be a man, he had to humble himself. And he had to stoop low. If the building was 100 stories high, Christ was on the top floor, and he had to walk down the stairs all the way to the basement level. So let's go back to Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ humbled himself and became a bondservant. For what purpose? To acquire a bride for himself. Unlike most husbands getting married today, Christ had no illusions about the purpose of marriage and what it was all about. He was not motivated by selfish interests. Romans 15, 2-3 says, Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. So Christ was not thinking, I can't wait to get married so my wife can do this and this and this for me. No, Christ took marriage vows in order to give to his bride, in order to serve his bride. Matthew twenty twenty eight, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. 
That's what Christ subjected himself to. He subjected himself. He put himself under the law of husbandry, which is a law of service and sacrifice. So husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and humbled himself for her. Humble yourself for the sake of your wife. Devote yourself to her interests, not her sinful ones, but the true interests of her body and soul. Subjugate your sinful interests, but also subjugate your lawful interests, which you might freely indulge if you were a single man. Subjugate them to the purpose of blessing your wife instead. Deny yourself and make her sole prosperity your chief business. A proud husband thinks self should be indulged and served above all, and that a wife's purpose is to help the husband indulge himself. That's his idea of what it means for her to be his helpmate. Uh, to take an all-too-common modern example, and unfortunately one that was characteristic of me in the early years of my marriage, a typical husband today thinks that he should get to spend Saturday afternoon and evening and Sunday afternoon and evening and Monday night and, uh, well, Thursday night now, and I think there's Friday night football. I, I lose track of it all uh, probably every night of the week. But he should be able to spend all that time watching football. And the wife's job, in his mind, is to take care of the housework, fix the meals, and keep the children from interrupting his game time. And if she doesn't do those things, if she needs to talk to him at some point in there about something important that maybe needs to be decided on, or maybe she just wants some companionship and some conversation, if she suggests perhaps that he should spend some time with his children... He is quite annoyed. He has not humbled himself for his bride. And he is unconcerned about the need she has. He is selfish and self-centered. He does not want to serve. He wants to be served. This is not how Christ loved his bride, the church. A wife who is thus cared for by her husband will not be a happy wife. She will not feel loved and cared for. She will not be secure in his affections. And such a husband should not be surprised if his wife is chronically unhappy and if she eventually seeks companionship elsewhere. She shouldn't do that, of course, but if she does, he will have contributed to the problem. How does Christ love his bride? He loved her by a principle of grace, not works. When Christ chose his bride... She was not beautiful. She was ugly. She was not virtuous. She was vile. He did not love her because she was lovely. He loved her to make her lovely and make her virtuous. That's what we see in verses 26 through 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now, what is the application here to husbands? Should a husband look for the ugliest and most morally bankrupt woman he can find and marry her? 
and then try to improve her in order to imitate Christ? No, I don't believe that's the takeaway here. The point is that just as Christ loves his bride on the basis of grace, not works, so a husband should love his wife on the basis of grace, not works. Look back at Ephesians 2, 1-5, where we've covered this before. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Christ's love for his bride was not tied to her merit, and neither should your love for your bride be tied to her merit. When the church fails to submit to Christ, Christ does not fail to love the church. Likewise, when your wife fails to submit to you, you should not cease to love her. Your love is not to be conditional on her submissiveness any more than Christ's love for the church is conditional upon her submissiveness. And conversely, a wife's submission should not be conditioned upon a husband's love. When he fails to love you, you should not fail to submit to him. We are never excused from the duties God gives us just because someone else is failing in their duties. How does Christ love his bride? Christ sanctifies his bride. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. Christ cares about the sanctification of the church and he devotes himself to ensure that she will grow and mature spiritually. That is Christ's business. That is his responsibility. Well, a husband obviously cannot sanctify his wife. He cannot transform her and cause her to grow. Only Christ can do that. But he can make her spiritual prosperity his chief business and concern. And he can foster and encourage the best possible environment where she can grow spiritually. This would include at least the following. Family worship. He should schedule time in the day, morning or evening, where he and his wife and children open up the word together and pray together and maybe sing together. This is the husband's job, not the wife's job. He should take the initiative on this. He should teach the word to his wife and kids. Now, he may not feel that he's very good at it, but he should try. He should ask God for help. And over time, he will likely improve at his ability to teach the word. Just as Christ washes his bride with the word, so the husband should immerse his wife and children in the word. It also means that he should choose a good church where he and his wife and children will be faithfully taught the word of God in truth. He should not take her to a church where the primary goal of the pastor is to entertain the congregation, or to a church where they will be fed on a diet of shallow, milk-toast sermons, 
or to a church where the primary selling point is the youth group and the social opportunities for his children, or where the strong point is good goosebump-producing music, none of those things wash his wife with the word. It is the word of God that is essential, and it's the husband's job to choose a church that faithfully washes people in the word, teaching the whole counsel of God, not skipping the hard things, even if his kids complain about how boring it is. Tell the whining kids to stuff a sock in it. Your kids should not be choosing your church for you, especially not unconverted kids. How does Christ love his bride? He provides for his bride. Christ has made every provision for the church. He has spared no expense. He has furnished her with all that she needs, both physically and spiritually. Matthew six thirty one through 33 Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now when we say that Christ furnishes his bride with all that she needs, we don't mean that all Christians are rich in the world. Now, the truth is that most Christians are not rich in the world's goods. Nevertheless, their basic needs are met. But when it comes to spiritual blessings, the sky is the limit. Ephesians 1.3, go back, it's been a while since we've been there, but remember this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. Or down in verses 7 through 8 of chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. 2 Peter 1, 2-3 Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So Christ is extremely generous to his bride and providing her everything she needs. Likewise, husbands should love their wives just as Christ loved the church. They should be generous to their wives. That doesn't mean that they have an unlimited amount of money to spend or that there is no such thing as a budget but they should not be stingy or parsimonious. They should delight in being generous to their wives, just as Christ delights to be generous toward his. How does Christ love his bride? He protects his bride. Christ is the good shepherd, and he protects his sheep from the wolves. He protects his bride from the enemy. Luke twenty-two thirty-one through 32 we see Jesus protecting Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
That's why Peter repented and recovered himself. John seventeen fifteen, excuse me, John seventeen eleven through twelve, Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Christ was guarding them. John seventeen fifteen. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Well, Christ did not marry a bride and then leave his bride to fend for herself against her enemies. He is her rock, her shield, her fortress. And so likewise, husbands should be protectors of their wives. They should defend their wives from false teachers, whether that be in churches or on the internet. When the enemy is lying to his wife, the husband should build her up with the truth. The wife may say something like, I don't feel that I'm pretty anymore. The husband replies, you're still pretty to me. Secondly, remember, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. That's what matters, is fearing the Lord. The wife may say, I feel like everyone thinks I just sit at home and do nothing because I'm not working at a career. The husband replies, You are working hard at home every day. Just because you don't get paid for it doesn't mean it's not of great value. It's valuable to me, and more importantly to God. And you don't need the approval of the world anyway. All you need is God's approval, and you have it through Christ. The husband will defend his wife against the accuser and the liar. The husband will also defend his wife physically from harm as an application of Christ's example of love for the church. How does Christ love his bride? He intercedes for his bride. Several verses show us that Christ prays for and intercedes for the church. Romans 8, 33-34 Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 9.24 For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. 1 John 2.1 My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And in John 17, we see a lengthy example of Christ praying for the church. So the application for husbands is that you too should pray for your wives. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Pray for her. Lift her up before the throne of grace. She needs your prayers just as you need hers. How does Christ love his bride? He gives himself up for his bride. 
Now we come to the apex of Christ's love. That second part of verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ laid down his life for his bride. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. John 10.15 I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And John 15, 12 through 13, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. For John three sixteen, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We know love by that. That's how we know it. That's how we know Christ's love for us. He laid down his life for us. And giving himself up for his bride, Christ paid her debts. And he paid it willingly. He suffered her punishment. He cleansed her of all her sins and gave her his righteousness. Obviously, a husband can't do all that for his wife. Only Christ can do those things. But a husband is called to imitate Christ by giving himself up for the good of his wife. We're talking about sacrificial love here. In loving his wife, a husband should not be sparing. He should go all the way. Christ did not say, well, I'll suffer for her, but I draw the line at dying. He didn't draw the line. He went all the way to the end and sacrificed his life for the church. He could do no more than he did. It is the ultimate in self-denial, the ultimate in selflessness, the ultimate in love and humility. Christ didn't just die. He died a torturous death on the cross. He didn't just die from torture. He endured the wrath and fury of God for the sins of his bride. And he considered it worth it to have his chosen bride. Husbands, you are to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You are to love your wife to such an extent that it might cost you your life. It will definitely cost you in the sense that it will be the death of self. Christ is the example you are to imitate. This is the pattern of husbandry you are to subject yourself to. And there's no possible way that you can do this without the grace of God working in you. And I pray that that grace may be multiplied to you and to me. This morning in my inbox, I got a grace gem from Octavius Winslow that proved to be quite timely for this topic. Winslow says, It has been the distinctive aim and the sincere desire of my ministry to make known and to endear the Savior to your hearts. Oh, how worthy is he of your most exalted conceptions, 
of your most implicit confidence, of your most self-denying service, of your most fervent love. When he could give you no more, and the fathomless depths of his love and the boundless resources of his grace would not be satisfied by giving you less, he gave you himself. Robed in your nature, laden with your curse, oppressed with your sorrows, wounded for your transgressions, and slain for your sins, he gave his entire self for you. His redeeming work now finished, he is perpetually engaged in meeting out blessings to his people from the exhaustless treasures of his love. He constantly woos your affection, invites your grief, and bids you flee with your daily trials to his sympathy, and with your hourly guilt to his blood. You cannot be too covetous in your drafts upon Christ's fullness nor can you be too extravagant in your expectations of supply. You may fail, as alas the most of us do, in making too little of Christ, but you cannot fail in making too much of Him. It is utterly impossible to know Christ and not become inspired with a desire to love Him supremely, to serve Him devotedly, to resemble Him closely, to glorify Him faithfully here, and to enjoy Him fully hereafter. Amen.